0: So this morning, we are searching for Sophia. My, uh, my son, Ethan, just saw this uh, illustration for the first time this morning. He was like, Dad, are we going to play hide-and-seek for my sister all morning? So you see how a, a six-year-old is interpreting searching for Sophia, but the reality is I think a lot of people are probably trying to interpret what does searching for Sophia actually mean. How many of you have ever seen the show The Walking Dead? I've never seen this show. I don't necessarily advocate for seeing the show either. But uh, in season two, there was a little girl named Sophia who had gone missing. And the entire season was really wrapped around, I guess, I've read, was wrapped around searching for Sophia. And the commentators mocked how diligently this family and community was looking for this girl amidst the zombie apocalypse. Because really, is there really any hope for a little eight-year-old girl amidst the zombie apocalypse all by her own in the middle of the wilderness? But they were adamant in finding her. She was their daughter, she was their niece, she was their friend, and so they did everything they possibly could to search for Sophia, to find Sophia. They did it passionately because they knew that they were searching for something that they longed for. They did it passionately and intently because they were looking for something that they desperately wanted. And so although when they found her, she was a zombie and they had to kill her, they did find Sophia. They found wisdom because they went looking for it passionately and intently. And so there's only going to be one other reference to the walking dead in this entire series, right? But, uh, but that's really not the point of the series. It's not about a little girl. It's about Sophia, which in the Greek means, anybody? Wisdom. Wisdom. We are searching for wisdom. Wisdom in Scripture, I just prayed, is the very heart of God, is the very mind of God. It is the embodiment of himself in the world in a lot of ways. It's the embodiment of Jesus Christ. He takes on the very form of wisdom. He takes on the very form of the mind of God and the spirit and the soul of God. And so in the series we are searching passionately for the mind of God hoping that he is going to enlighten us and reveal us his wisdom as we address some very very challenging questions. The questions we will address were raised by you the Restoration Church family, not only you but many of your co-workers perhaps or your own children brought questions before you or your family members brought questions before you and so you wrote them down and you handed them to me and you said, "Ross, give us insight." And uh, there's a part of me that's really scared to do this. Uh, This is a very challenging thing to do. These are really hard questions. But really, my real challenge as a communicator, I think, in regards to this series, is kind of condensing these conversations that really should be had over the course of months, you know, in semester-long classes in a university, perhaps, into, say, 30 to 40 minutes. That's the real challenge. And the reality is I'm not going to live up to that challenge very often. Um, it's going to be too challenging. There's too much to talk about. There's too much to condense into these 30-minute segments. And so I would really like to continue these conversations with you. If you have questions of me regarding anything that you hear or anything that you learn or anything that pops up regarding the series, man, shoot me an email. I love the dialogue. Let's grab coffee. I'd love to continue these conversations because the reality is we're just not going to answer everything that is on your mind in the next 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. 40. Thank you. We're going to begin each week by by asking some questions, the, the questions that you brought to my attention, um, and then I'm going to help us find a biblical framework, a biblical worldview to address some of these questions. And a lot of times, I'm probably going to create a framework and allow you, by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to fill in the gaps. I'm not going to give you every answer. I'm not going to cross every T, I'm not going to dot every I, I'm not going to tell you absolutely how everything should be done, but I'm going to create a framework that you're going to be able to, by, again, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, fill in the gaps. And again, we can continue the conversations over coffee and lunch and email and whatnot. And so I really hope these these conversations don't end here. I hope that we're going to be furthered in our understanding of who God is, even beyond these Sunday mornings. So today, the question's that we are going to address were as follows. As Christians, how are we supposed to act in the world? As Christians, how are we supposed to relate to culture? Why are there so many different denominations? And really the fundamental question I'm hoping to address this morning is, what does it mean to be a Christian? Now, the reality is we could take any number of angles to address this very fundamental question, right, of what it means to be a Christian. One could say that a Christian is a forgiven sinner. In a lot of ways, that sums up what Christianity is about in some ways, but of course, that's going to have to be unpacked if we go down that route. One can say is that a Christian is someone who believes in Jesus. Now, that creates all sorts of rabbit trails, which we'll address in just a moment. That too would have to be unpacked. One might say that a Christian is someone who follows Jesus or someone who goes to church on Sunday mornings, a Christian church on Sunday mornings. And of course, all these would have to be unpacked. And as we address those questions, more questions would arise and the web of tangled thoughts would just get bigger and bigger and bigger until we all go crazy. All this is to say is that the label Christian in our day and age is a very generic title. It's a broad description that a lot of people lay claim to, right? Because the Catholics down the street at St. Michael's call themselves Christians. The Mormons up the road on top of Holly Hill call themselves Christians. Jehovah's Witnesses at the Kingdom Hall call themselves Christians. We're Baptists, at least I'm Baptist, if you will. We're a Baptist church. We call ourselves Christians. The Methodists, the Presbyterians, we all call ourselves Christian. But do we all mean the same thing? Of course not. If we all meant the same thing, there wouldn't be 35,000 Christian denominations in our world today. 35,000! Everyone means slightly different, something different than, uh, than the, the church down the road from them. There are 35,000 Christian denominations because each denomination practices the faith in a slightly different way. So what does it mean to be a Christian can really be a confusing question that a lot of people are going to answer in a lot of different ways. But it's not like the confusion is anything new to us. It's not like the confusion just, you know, popped out of the sky ten years ago. It's been happening for a very, very long time. Think about the New Testament, for instance. There are three references to the word Christian being applied to a congregation of people, a body of people in the New Testament. Only three The first one is in the book of Acts. It's the first time the word is ever used. We are told that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, one thing to know about Antioch is that it was the first Gentile, entirely Gentile congregation. There were no Jewish converts in Antioch. This is important because the name Christian was originally a term of mockery. People used it to make fun of others. You're, you're a Christian? <laughs> I can't believe you're a Christian. That's foolish. That's stupid. You're a Christian? That's what the Romans used as a mockery. Because Christ to the Romans was weak. Christ to the Romans was foolish. He was not the powerful, iron-fisted God that they served. He wasn't Zeus standing with his lightning bolts sitting on the clouds. That's what a God is like. We hung your God on a cross. You follow that thing? You're stupid and pathetic. And so Christ was weak, and so the Romans gave followers of Jesus the mocking term Christian, which means little Christ. To be associated with Christ was to be considered a fool in the first century. But eventually, as we see with its other two references, Christians moved from being made fun of to be feared and persecuted. Peter, in his first letter, said, If you suffer for being a Christian, be proud of bearing that name. Be proud of bearing that name if you were being suffered, if you are being uh, persecuted and suffering. So by the end of the first century, the term Christian came to define a type of person or a person identified with another person, namely Christ. And they held that identification both theologically and also politically. And that is why they were suffered. Yes, Jesus was God. He died and rose from the dead, but also he alone was the one to be worshipped. And in a pluralistic society where the emperor must be included in your worship, man, Christianity rubbed the Romans the wrong way. Serving one God, as Christians did, made a bold statement politically that made them suffer. And as Christianity spread beyond Jewish converts and started impacting the pagan Gentile landscape, Christians became a threat to the Roman worldview. Man, no one cared in the Roman world if Jews were being converted to Christianity because they didn't worship the emperor anyway, and they were grandfathered into that. But the Christians, Gentiles becoming Christian, Gentiles coming to the emperor and saying, We can't worship you anymore. We're not going to go to your pagan temples anymore. We're now only going to serve the one Christian God. Man, that infuriated the Romans. And so they were persecuted. Christians were no longer to be made fun of, but they were seen as enemies and as threats. And now to be called a little Christ from within was a title of great honor. To be called a Christian by the world, that is a great honor. It meant something about the someone who it was called. It was the defining characteristic that I was like Christ, and the world saw me as being like Christ, To be called a little Christ, a Christian, that is a great honor. And the fact that they wanted to kill me in the same way they killed Christ, that is a great honor. It's not entirely an honor in our day-to-day. The world looks at Christians, right, little Christ, and they are back to mocking us. Because we are judgmental. We're overly political. We stand upon our... Soap boxes and proclaim hell and death threats to the world. That's how the world views us. Christians are once again mocked. You know, for the first 300 years of Christianity, Christians were seen as defiant to the empire and countercultural because they lived out of a particular mindset. They had a particular character that defined them, and it was so countercultural to the world around them that the world actually hated them for it. They were the living embodiment of Christ's spirit, and it produced in them an increasing character so radical that everything else hated them. But everyone else also took notice of the way that they lived their life. And the character that they lived out of was called love. Case in point, in the second century, the Roman army brought back a horrible plague from a campaign in the Far East. They estimated that 2,000 people were dying every single day. Now, obviously, there were more people dying than they could dig graves for, and so a lot of these people were just left in the city streets. A lot of these corpses were just left to, to rot in the city streets or be eaten by wild dogs so great fear overruns the city and the panic motivates the majority of the people to flee to the mountains and the surrounding areas to escape being exposed to the disease. Nobody was left to care for the sick and the dying. All the pagan Romans fled to the mountains. They ran away from their dying mothers and their dying children. They didn't want to be exposed, so they abandoned them. Except for the Christians. They were the ones who stepped into the chaos. They were the ones who put their own health and vitality and life on the line to care for the diseased and the sick and the dying. And the result was astonishing. Right The sectors of Rome, where Christians reside, they find healing because of the caring, healing hands motivated by the love of God to bear witness to the love of God in this physical, tangible way, to address the needs of their society. Love defined Christianity. Love defined Christians. What did it mean to be a Christian in the first century? It meant to be compelled by the very love of God, empowered by His Holy Spirit, to love the world around you. But come 325 AD, when Constantine legalized Christianity, he made it the official religion of the empire. To be a Christian all of a sudden meant to be a Roman citizen. Everybody became Christian. The fact that you were a Roman citizen means you are a Christian. It didn't matter who you were, how you practiced, or what you actually believed, and you were a Christian, and it was expected of you now to attend a church service and to pay taxes due to the church. The great morphing of the state and the church in 325 AD, when Christianity became the official religion of the land, leveled the field for what it meant to be Christian. Everybody, all of a sudden, with one fell swoop, became Christian. There's no differentiation now between those who actually were Christian and those who weren't. Everyone was given the name Christian. And for hundreds of years, the line one had to cross to be a Christian was to simply be a citizen of the state, to attend a church service, and to pay your taxes. That's all it took to be a Christian. And this mentality, though different, I think still persists today. so join me in the first century as we look about how this mentality was combated by the first apostles. If you would join me in the book of Acts, chapter 15. Let me set the stage while you are getting there. Acts is towards the end of your Bibles. It's after the four canonical gospels, uh, three canonical gospels. Uh, and it's... Um, right after the book of John. So if you find John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you are on your way to Acts chapter 15. Or if you have a smartphone, you can pull up your Bible app too. That'd be an easy way to finding it. So Paul and Barnabas had been preaching the gospel in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. They've won a lot of uh, Gentiles—Gentiles are simply non-Jewish people—to faith in Christ. But this begins to present a lot of unique problems— if Jesus fulfilled Judaism, then it was argued by many that in order to become a Christian, one first had to become Jewish. If that's really how it worked. If Jesus really fulfilled Judaism, then in order to become a Christian, you have to become Jewish. So, all the pagan Gentiles who now call yourself a Christian, many thought, you should have to go through the acts of becoming Jewish, which was circumcision. That was the physical identification of being a Jew. Peter and Paul, however, and the other apostles begin to argue otherwise. And so we pick up in chapter 15. Verse 5, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. In other words, they must become Jewish. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by the giving of the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Amen? Amen. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and the wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people from his name, from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who, do, uh, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Father, we do need your wisdom to understand your word, Father, and to address this very, very important topic. This is the beginning of it all, Father. What does it mean to follow you? What does it mean to be identified by your name? God, if we can't get this right, then what are we doing? And so God, enlighten us, Father. Give us insights um, and, and break hard hearts, Father, and open opened closed-off minds that we might hear you and we might see you this morning. Amen. 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 So the contention Peter and Paul and all the other apostles were dealing with was the belief that if you wanted to become a Christian, then you first had to become Jewish. And what that meant was that you had to be circumcised and you had to begin following the law of Moses. This barrier called circumcision was the line one had to cross in order to become Christian. And according to the law of Moses, there were 613 other various laws. And so in order to become Christian, you had to all of a sudden follow the 613 various Old Testament laws, including becoming circumcised. Now, the reality for us is that circumcision really is not an issue in our day. The vast majority of Gentile males are circumcised at birth, not for a religious purpose necessarily, but for a variety of other purposes. But the, the spirit of the boundary, the dividing line, I think still exists in our day, right? Circumcision may not be our issue, but there are several other issues. For instance, when I was a freshman in college, my roommate who was a staunch Catholic, his sister, who was also a staunch Catholic, came to me and said, Ross, you're not a Christian. You've never been baptized. You, you can't be a Christian if you've never been baptized. You're not saved if you're not baptized. Don't you know that, Ross? And I'm like, well, I, I, I don't know that. I'm a Protestant. Obviously, they created a dividing line for me. That in order to be Christian, in order to be saved, I had to jump over the dividing line of baptism. And if I did not cross that boundary line, I was, in their view, screwed something I had to do in order to be saved. I recently had a conversation with a friend who was told that unless she spoke in tongues, she had no right to call herself a Christian because according to the person she was talking to, that's the only actual sign of having received the Holy Spirit. And so unless you cross the boundary line, the dividing line of speaking in tongues, you have no right to call yourself a Christian because that is the only boundary line that there is. That's the evidence of being saved is speaking in tongues. That is the dividing line. And so the argument was that the dividing line between being a Christian and being out of it is thicker for some people than it is for others. For some, the line is really simple, right? The Jewish Christians thought circumcision was all you needed. In our day, some people think that speaking in tongues is all you need. And during the 18th century, when the Enlightenment really started to challenge the Christian worldview, fundamentalism was born. And they established seven core principles to combat the growing liberalism of their day. Seven fundamentals that the Christian must adhere to in order to live the Christian life amidst the changing world. Fundamentalism as its roots, it was was a valiant attempt at holiness. It really was. But fundamentalism throughout the years morphed into a branch of legalism, not all that unlike the Jewish Christians that Paul and Peter were wrestling with in their day. Fundamentalism took its strictest form in the 20th century when the modern mentality suggested that in order to become a Christian, one had to look and act a certain way. I've mentioned this before. This is, you know, old hat to some of you. They developed a fortress mentality. In order to become a Christian, you had to get inside the fortress. And as long as you can get inside the fortress and adhere to all the principles, all the columns that make up the fortress and make it stand, then and only then do you have the right to call yourself a Christian. But if you remain on the outside, if you can't adhere to all the principles, then you can't rightfully call yourself a Christian. And we will point your finger and we will judge you because of it. The mantra that summed up this general mentality within the culture was Christians don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. That's what makes you a good Christian, right? The clear example is the movie or the musical Footloose, for those of you who have seen it. The world is evil, and so if you want to be a Christian, a holy Christian, one who honors God, then get inside the fortress because the fortress will protect you. That's the fortress mentality. The world is evil. Stay away from the things of the world. Get inside the fortress, and we can call you a Christian. And so we have this mentality developed uh, generically. There are, of course, more pillars and more columns to the fortress than this, but these are some of them, right? You don't, don't, you don't smoke. You don't drink. Uh, you don't have sex because sex is inherently evil. It's no good. And so if you want to get inside the Christian fortress, then don't look like the world, and here's some of the things that the world does, so make sure you abstain from all of these things. You have to be baptized, right? That's one of the lines. It's just, that's one of the things of being a Christian is that you have to be baptized by water. You have to take communion. If you don't take communion, then you are not uh, following the, religious, the religion appropriately, and so you're outside of the boundary. You obviously need to attend church, but in their mentality it wasn't just Sunday morning. It was also Sunday evening. So at least twice on Sunday, you had to be at church. You had to attend a regular prayer meetings on top of that. You had to read your Bible. And that was, uh, Emily and I both went to a Christian university. And that, that, was, that was real, my friends. That People kind of looked at you and said, Do you, are you carrying your Bible in your backpack? Do you have it in your back pocket everywhere you go? Are you reading your Bible? Because if you're not, then we're going to judge you because you're not a real Christian if you're not reading your Bible and doing your daily devotionals, okay? You can't watch certain movies. You can't watch certain TV shows. And you cannot uh, listen to certain music because that's all secular and we have to stay away from that. So all you who watch The Walking Dead, sorry, guys, can't get in. Can't get into uh, the Christian circle, the Christian fortress. You need to be Republican. Democrats aren't allowed. It's It's just the reality of the fortress, you know? It's uh, it's just how it works. um, You have to be conservative both theologically and politically. You have to hold to a literal seven days uh, view of creation. That's the only view that's acceptable within the Christian fortress mentality. You have to be a dispensationalist, which is a particular view of the end times. That is uh, another mentality that you must hold and belief, that you must hold to get into the circle. You need to be theologically reformed, which is... Uh, in reference to God's sovereignty and how he interacts with the world. And then there are a lot of sect-specific items that are given to this as well. Some of them, for instance, uh, there there are about a million other things that we could put on this. Uh, I cannot be exhaustive, obviously. A couple of the other ones are, you know, how we interact with homosexuals. That's that's one that's prevailing in our culture today. Um, Or religious sect ones, like I had mentioned, like... um, Receiving the sacraments on Sunday mornings, taking communion, going to confessional booths, things like that. There's, there's a million more that could add to that. You guys get the idea, though? You get the idea. This is what it means to be Christian. So as long as you can follow the list of rules and do what the list of rules say and abide by this lifestyle, then you have the right to call yourself a Christian. That was the prevailing mentality of Christianity 50 years ago in America. The issue was that those who tried to live this lifestyle became Pharisees. They were the ones who established these rules, but they knew deep down inside that you can't abide by all these rules. You, you can't abide by the laws that you're keeping for yourselves, that you're making for yourselves. You can't keep them. Even though you may have looked the part on the outside, your heart wasn't keeping the part on the inside. The rules only served to deepen their guilt, in other words. Those who tried to live up to this mentality left feeling guilty and ashamed of themselves because they cannot live up to the standard that the culture had set for them, the Christian culture had set for them. And at the end of the day, this mentality and form of Christianity is just another works-based religion, is it not? That if you can only become Christian by getting inside the Christian bubble, by getting inside the Christian fortress, if it's something that I need to do, if these are rules and laws that I need to adhere to, then I'm just another works-based religion. I can be accepted, I can be saved if, if I follow the rules. But the world began to look at this, and sometime in the late 1900s, right around the time that I was born, around mid-80s, early-90s, somewhere in there, a dramatic shift began to take place. Why do we walk around with all of this guilt? People began to ask. Why do we walk around with all this guilt? Didn't Jesus accept us as we were still sinners? I'm in Romans 5, eight. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. Doesn't God love us unconditionally? So the postmodern mentality, when applied to Christianity, basically says, hey, if Christ accepts me unconditionally while I am still a sinner, then what he wants for me is to accept me as well. That's really what he wants. He wants me to accept me as I really am. That's the postmodern mentality. As long as I can accept who I am, then Christ will accept me also. And of course, this discussion branches off into a million different tangents that we don't have time for today. But man, maybe what God really wants for me is for me just to accept who I am, and because I'm a sinner, then maybe I just need to accept that and continue to live my life however I feel like God is calling me to live my life. Paul had a lot to say about this. Jude had a lot to say about this. He said you can't make li- uh, sin a uh, you cannot make grace a license to sin. Man, should we just keep sinning? Should I just keep living the life that that God accepts of me so that his grace and his love will increase? Paul asked the Romans in in, uh, in chapter 6. He says, no, of course not. That's foolishness. You are transformed by the grace of God. You are transformed by the love of God to put away the fleshly desires and to live a new life. So when the postmodern mindset fails to realize is that they just replaced all the strict rules for what it means to be a Christian with all the fluffy rules with what it means to be a Christian. Both the modern mentality where we need to get inside the fortress and the postmodern mentality which says do whatever you want because it doesn't really matter. God's grace is sufficient. Both are still based on something that I need to do. At the very core, they are judgmental in nature, right? Neither one of these mentalities actually address the problem that Christianity solves. And the problem is, of course, that we as humans are born into an infinitely deep hole that we cannot climb out of. There's no amount of work and there's no amount of effort that we can do that will save ourselves, but at the very heart and the very core of both the modern mentality and the postmodern modern is a works-based effort to climb ourselves out of the hole. But as Paul wrote to the Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard, and we've rebelled against his authority. Right? Sin doesn't discriminate. Everyone is in the same position before a holy God. So Peter and Paul address this as they conclude our section in Acts. In verse 8, he says, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them, the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, Jewish and Gentile, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And I think in a lot of ways, these four verses sum up what it means to be Christian. And there are three components that when they are weaved together, produce the defining characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. First and foremost, we are told that God gave his spirit God gave his Holy Spirit that his very life would begin to live inside those who believed in him. Now, a lot of people in our world, as I've already stated, claim that if you want evidence that someone has the Holy Spirit living inside of them, that it is going to produce itself in tongues. Tongues, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the idea of tongues, is that it is a spiritual language for many people, it's a prayer language. But to the outsider, looking in on someone speaking in tongues, it's, just, it's nonsensical babble. It, it doesn't make sense to anybody other than the person who's speaking it. It's a spiritual language that some think is the true mark of having received the Holy Spirit. But Paul spends three chapters in 1 Corinthians, three chapters of a 16-chapter book, arguing... Otherwise, his conviction is that the greatest evidence of someone having the Holy Spirit is not the speaking in tongues, but the increased desire and ability to love. That is the greatest evidence of having the Holy Spirit in your life. An increased, not only a desire to love other people, but an increased ability to love other people. That is the primary fruit that the Holy Spirit develops in the people it indwells. Second, Acts tells us that faith purifies the heart. Now, what is interesting about biblical faith is that its object is always Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. His faithfulness is what we place our faith in. We ride, in other words, on his coattails. We are riding his faithfulness by our faith. He lived by his own free will without con- the contamination of sin. He had every, every, every ability and, and, and opportunity to sin, but by his own free will and determination, he did not sin. And yet, at the end of his life, he died the sinner's death, but what he did was an incredible act of generosity in removing the penalty and the curse of death. And now for all those of us who recognize our position, right? We are in the hole. For those of us who recognize we are in the hole and we cannot, out of any effort of our own or any good works of our own, climb our way out of that hole. We recognize that we are rebels against the holy God. If we trust that Jesus has taken upon our penalty and our guilt and our sin, then what this says is that we will be cleansed. We will be made pure before God. The guilt will wash away. The shame will wash away. The condemnation, the penalty will wash away. We will be cleansed and purified before God. The stain has been removed not by what we have done, but by what Christ has done on our behalf. We ride his faithfulness. We ride his obedience And thirdly, it is by God's grace we are saved. This is God's gift to us, born out of his love. It's not something that we can earn, right? Grace is simply a gift. There's no amount of works or efforts or principles or fortresses that we need to get into. There are no dividing lines that we must cross. It is simply a gift that must be received humbly. And when these three... Right, God's spirit, God's faithfulness, and God's grace are weaved together within our hearts, and they don't only find a place within our hearts, but they, they begin to work on hearts, and we give them the authority and, and the room to do their work within our hearts, it begins to produce in us a singular characteristic, a singular characteristic called love. it begins to produce in us not only an increased desire to love, but the ability to love. And love, as defined in Scripture, is the putting yourself last. It's the looking to the needs of the world around you. It's looking at the concerns and the cares of the people around you and saying, what must I do to assist you? What must I give up so that your life is blessed? What must I sacrifice so that your life is lived? And what becomes beautiful is that when you do this in communities of people like Restoration Church or a marriage, for instance, is that when I give of myself so that your life would be blessed and you all equally give of yourself so that my life be blessed, who's in need? No one. It's not like I'm sacrificing and I'm the martyr and I'm just going to you know cuddle away in my little hole because that's what good Christians do who love all the time. And I have to cut off my arms and cut off my legs so that your life might be improved. It's giving of myself to fill you so in turn you give of yourself to fill me. And that is what it means to be Christian. To be compelled by the Holy Spirit of God to live your life as Christ would live his life. And so when the apostles wrote to the Gentiles at the end of our section, he told them to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, sexual immorality, the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. They were saying that, you know, Gentiles, you used to live a certain kind of life. You, you, you used to live a, a particular lifestyle defined by your former religious institution. All of these things that that the apostles wrote to the Gentiles—they're all pagan religious activities, right? Food was sacrificed to idols. That's that's obvious. They 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 held an idol before the food as they slit th- the throat of an animal, for instance, and they they said, "This is done on your behalf, and this is done for you." And so it's a food sacrificed to a false god. And so that's obvious, right? But one of the most common ways the gods were worshipped in their day was through temple prostitution. That is how you worship the gods is by engaging in temple prostitution. They would also worship their gods through the strangling of their animals with their bare hands as an act of power over them. Right, for me to, to take a, a goat, for instance, and to really grip it by its neck and to strangle it with my own bare hands, that's an, in, that's, a, that's an act of my power and you submitting to my authority and my strength and my power. And then after that animal dies, they would cut it open and they would either drink its blood or they would pour its blood over it as a symbolic act that I am taking the life and I'm taking the power of this animal and I'm consuming it into myself. Because the strength and the power, that's really what the world is after. And that's how I am going to worship the gods. That is how the pagan institution of the temple worship in so many of the cities that the Gentiles resided in. That's how they worshiped. And so what Paul and the apostles are so eager to communicate is, guys, you had this old religious activity, and it's all man's attempt to solve the problem in the world. Right? The problem that we have rebelled against God and we are sinners. All religious activity is about trying to appease some higher power. That's what religious activity is. It's how it's defined, is by appeasing some higher power by our works. But We have rebelled against God. And there's no amount of work, there's no amount of religion, there's no amount of good charity that we can do that will appease the gods. And so guys, put it away. Why are you concerned with all this old religious activity? Put it away. Don't do it any longer. Get rid of all those temple activities, all those activities of trying to appease the gods by works and your religious activities because you cannot do it. Stop that old way of life, in other words. Stop the religion. Stop trying to appease God through your former forms of works because it's pointless. God, through Jesus Christ, has already put to death your problem and so now live in him. You have an old way of life, and you have a new way of life. You have an old way of life that was defined by self-prioritization, by by self-reinning, by by selfishness, by putting my own needs first. I am the king of my throne, and so that is what my life is going to be defined about. How can my life benefit? How can my life be improved? I'm going to take, I'm going to suck, I'm a black hole, taking all the resources of this world into myself. That is what my life is about. That is sin. You've put that to death. That is the problem in the world. You've put it to death by nailing it to the cross. And now as you participate in the work of the cross and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon you and the faith of God cleanses your heart and the grace of God transforms you from within, begin now to live your new life. And what is that life marked by? Love. So, my friends, what does it then mean to be a Christian? It means to live out of the life-giving Spirit of God given us. And He gave this as a generous gift. And you know what this generous gift of God's Spirit is going to continue to do it? It's going to continue to purify us because the reality is, as Emily has already mentioned, like we we say we're going to live this life for Christ, but the reality is we, we don't do it very well. Right? We still get angry, even though we said we weren't going to do it. I still get impatient. Even though I thought that the Spirit of God would, you know, create in me a heart for love. I still have that old self that is continually being cleansed and washed over by the blood of Christ. And so God has given us his Spirit as a generous gift that will continually purify our hearts. And what that will do will increase in us not only the desire, but also the ability to love him in return and also love one another. My friends, that is what it means to be a Christian. Not defined by the religious activity of church attendance, but defined by your love. And of course, love is only generated by God's Holy Spirit because God is love. Love.